Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkshire host, and our guest is Alexander Evans, a counselor in the British Diplomatic Service and a senior fellow at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. Mr. Evans recently was the Henry A. Kissinger Chair in Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress, and previously worked at the Department of State as a senior advisor, first to Ambassador Richard Holbrook, and then to Ambassador Mark Grossman, the U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. He previously served as a British diplomat in Islamabad and New Delhi, and as a member of the policy planning staff in London. Today we talk with him in a personal capacity about the U.S. and South Asia. Welcome, Mr. Evans. Thank you very much for having me. You've done a lot of writing and research on the U.S. and Pakistan. Uh, tell us a little bit about your findings. Well, it, it's a really complicated relationship, mm -hmm. uh, and a relationship in which both sides feel often betrayed uh, by the other side. Uh, and one of the interesting things about delving into the archives, particularly of U.S. foreign policy on Pakistan, is to see this theme again and again, right back from the uh, late 1950s onwards. Mm -hmm. uh, and equally, if you go back to Pakistani speeches uh, and press statements and, and Pakistani sources, you see the same kind of uh, story about disappointment with the United States and disappointment with the relationship. Um, the reality is actually the relationship's been much more cooperative uh, uh, than people sometimes think. Mm -hmm. And both sides have uh, tried to use it to advance their own national interests. So there's a rationality that underpins both the U.S. approach to Pakistan and Pakistan's approach to the U.S. The trouble is the, the issues that Pakistan wants out of a relationship at different times and the uh, subjects that the U.S. has wanted from Pakistan um, have changed depending on what the uh, main themes are for, for those countries at any given moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what is the traditional relationship between South Asia expertise and policy making in Washington? Well, I think that the myth of a relationship between expertise and policy making is that expertise has very little input into policy making in mm -hmm. DC. Um, I'm not sure that that's true. I think uh, the experts. Uh, regret sometimes not being able to be at the top table uh, when key decisions are made. Mm -hmm. And it is true that when key foreign policy decisions are made on, on India or Pakistan, but they're not going to be made by a mid-level analyst uh, or the in-house expert on, on the subject. Um, but at the same time, I think if you look at the archives, um, the degree to which uh, principals, so the senior members of cabinet in the US making decisions about foreign policy, actually draw on advice and analysis but is deeply steeped in knowledge about Pakistan or India or Afghanistan, actually expertise has a very key role to play. Mm -hmm. um, I think the reality though is that policy decisions are made by political principles, not by experts, and that sometimes is something that makes experts unhappy. Do you think that um, in making policy m more um, more should be given to uh, the expertise, the people who know about, you know, what is going on, perhaps? No, I, I think it's right. In, in any democratic society, uh -huh. it's right that elected politicians uh, and, and members of the cabinet make the key decisions on national security for that country. Mm -hmm. um, 
the, there is a danger about experts, which is experts can think that they are right more than they actually are right. Um, so they can be overconfident about judgments that they make or the analysis that they offer. So actually, a little too much expertise can be a dangerous thing in policy making. Uh -huh. Interesting. Are, are there any? Is there an example you might be able to cite, perhaps? Anything spring to mind? Well, you know, none of the experts, it seems, that worked on uh, Pakistan in the 1970s mm -hmm. uh, necessarily anticipated the kind of relationship that the U.S. would have with Pakistan in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, so experts don't have any uh, more ability to predict the future than any of us do, than, than you or I do. Right. Um, so the danger is when experts think that they can predict the future, uh, the reality is that none of us can predict the future. Right, right. And given the current problems in South Asia, um, including Afghanistan, how do you think the U.S. should be approaching Pakistan? I think the U.S. needs to approach Pakistan with serious intent. And that means uh, even when there are frustrations, recognizing that there's a relationship there that needs to be managed with Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, it's far better to raise problems in private than engage in the sort of megaphone diplomacy of complaint. And that's, that's a, a problem that sometimes has been evident both in Islamabad and Washington. Um, the key over the next couple of years is that the U.S. still needs Pakistan. It needs Pakistan in terms of the U.S. counterterrorism interests inside Pakistan. Mm -hmm. It needs Pakistan in terms of managing any political process in Afghanistan that will be really the underpinning of stability or indeed the lack of stability in South Asia in the coming five or ten years. Um, that doesn't mean that you give Pakistan everything that it wants or that you sugarcoat um, the relationship, mm -hmm. um, but it does mean that you have to do business and have a working relationship. One of the suggestions that's been made uh, has been that Pakistan should be contained uh, or isolated. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is you know, a natural argument given the frustrations with Pakistan in Washington. But I think you know, some of the harder-edged arguments about containing Pakistan neglect to understand the nature that A, the US needs Pakistan, uh, and B, Pakistan has other friends, China, mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia, Malaysia, Turkey, and actually isolating Pakistan on the international scene would be quite difficult to do. Yes, it does strike me as, uh, as we're in a very tricky situation, um, so to speak, because we do need Pakistan. What do you, how do you think the United States should be working with Pakistan? And what is it exactly do you think that Pakistan wants from us? Well, in terms of what Pakistan wants, uh, Pakistan, or and when, when we say Pakistan, we're not necessarily talking here about all of Pakistan's people, um, but there's, there's a sense of wanting to have the dignity and sovereignty of Pakistan respected. Mm -hmm. uh, for Pakistan's military, who have been very much the, the architects of Pakistan's national security culture and interests, um, they're very keen to uh, balance, or at the very least, uh, offset India's growing power in the world. Mm -hmm. so, so it's a very India-centric foreign policy that Pakistan pursues. Um, and this is something that the US has been aware of right back to the late 1950s. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a factor that you, we have to understand properly uh, of the Pakistanis and what they want. In terms of how we actually work with them, I, I think there has to be a recognition that of where US and Pakistan's interests combine, 
-hmm. And one of those uh, commonalities is in a peaceful, uh, stable Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And sometimes where they may differ, uh, but Pakistan may want the US to be much more active, for example, on solving the problems between India and Pakistan. And that's not something that Washington necessarily wants to get drawn into. Um, so it, it's a case of taking a balanced approach that is conscious of the US national interest and focused on achieving that, uh, but is also conscious of uh, the style of engagement with Pakistan and the importance of personal relationships with senior Pakistanis. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Pakistanis, in particular the Pakistan military and politicians, want to be respected in international affairs and don't want to be humiliated mm -hmm. or perceived to be humiliated in their relationship with Washington. How, do you, how would you characterize our relationships with certain individuals in Pakistan today? I think it's no, uh, it's no secret that the relationship has been troubled in the last year. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been troubled because uh, Pakistanis have complaints about Washington's policies, uh, both in Afghanistan and on terrorism. Uh, and Washington has complaints about Pakistan's uh, apparent willingness or commitment to support US goals in the region as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a troubled relationship and a relationship that has also been subject to many shocks so some of the problems in the relationship don't come from things that either side can predict, mm -hmm. but they come from uh, incidents or, or crises that emerge with little notice and can really derail some of the ordinary sure. business of, of trying to build a relationship together. Mm -hmm. Can the United States influence what happens in South Asia in the coming years? I think this comes to the heart of the question of diplomacy. You know, how much uh, influence can any one country bring to bear on another? Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, you know, the question of influence is something I, I teach in an undergraduate course here on mm -hmm. diplomacy. Um, the US clearly does have some influence in South Asia. Uh, one case at the moment is, is the crisis that's going on at, uh, as, we, as we speak in, in the Maldives, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, some form of uh, change in government has taken place. Um, the, the, the former president argues that it's a coup. Uh, the new president argues that it was a constitutional change. And the US has been very active. Uh, Bob Blake, the Assistant Secretary of State, has flown out to talk to both sides. Uh, and the US has clearly played a positive role in bringing democracy to the Maldives, mm -hmm. not something that gets uh, uh, international headlines in the New York Times, but a very important move for the people of the Maldives. Mm -hmm. It's more difficult to see uh, India or Pakistan or Afghanistan choosing to do things that are not uh, perceived to be in their national interest because the U.S. wants them to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you know, India, I think, will tread very carefully in terms of being drawn into a, an alliance with the United States vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, Pakistan will be very careful not to be perceived to do uh, Washington's bidding in Afghanistan but to pursue its own interests, which are much more linked, as I said earlier, to India. Um, so the limits of influence, I think, really come up to national interests, and it's where those national interests sometimes are competing uh, rather than points of cooperation with Washington. Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned teaching a course on diplomacy. How are you bringing, um, you know, what you have experienced in the outside world in terms of diplomacy and policy making into the, into the classroom? Well, I, I, I'm really enjoying teaching two courses here at Yale. Mm -hmm. one, one is a graduate course on South Asia, uh, and the other is an undergraduate course on impact and influence in diplomacy. Uh, I think with the South Asia course, 
Um, the approach I've taken is to try and use uh, declassified documents wherever I can in the teaching of the course. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to discuss um, the India-Pakistan war in 1965, the trick is actually saying here is, you know, here's the CIA analysis, mm -hmm. here are the cables that came in from uh, India and Pakistan from the US embassies, here's the National Security Council document mm -hmm. debating uh, what should be done by the U.S. about the crisis. Wow, that sounds like great fun for the, for the students. Well, I, I hope so, and I, I think it offers a window into how policy actually takes place right, yep. and how it relates back to impressions that countries have of each other and, and how expertise plays in the system in a way that perhaps just using secondary sources doesn't give you the immediacy uh, sure. or the connection to it. In terms of teaching on, on diplomacy, um, we all know that we're living in a, in a changing world, a world where new powers like uh, China and India and Brazil are becoming more important on the international scene. And I think trying to build a course around uh, comparative diplomacy, so looking at actually how do these countries operate in terms of their diplomatic reporting network, how do they make national security policy, what's their approach, not just to the US, but their approach to the wider world around them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting uh, exercise in building a global appreciation of how states operate mm -hmm. and how some multilateral organizations operate as well. Um, so the course is as much focused on how uh, Singapore or Turkey operate in the international system mm -hmm. as you know, the traditional approaches to diplomacy, which tend to be more focused on you know, Britain or uh, Germany uh, or the United States. So, for instance, Singapore has a very different approach to diplomacy than, for instance, Britain? Well, Singapore has a different, uh, it has a different set of national interests, mm -hmm. and it has a different uh, size of diplomatic service. The Singapore diplomatic service is much smaller than the British Foreign Office. Sure. Um, and the Singapore Foreign Service is, is an interesting case in point because they don't actually have an enormous number of embassies worldwide. But what they do with a very small number of diplomats is try and build on relationships with third countries. So in terms of their relationship with Washington or with Japan uh, or with the European Union, they'll try and use that to really understand as much as they can about what's going on in the world mm -hmm. and then actually lobby and influence on Singapore's key national interests. Mm -hmm. So I think some of that is, is really interesting. The way in which they invest in talent and quality foreign service officers is very striking and the fact that many of those foreign service officers don't, don't always stay for a career. Many will go off and leave and work for a management consultancy or an international bank. Mm -hmm. And the Singaporeans are comfortable with that. Their argument is how do they compete for the best possible talent to pursue diplomatic excellence in their foreign policy. Okay, very good. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing some of your work. Thank you very much for having me. For more information about Mr. Evans, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.